What if you could test your blood in your own home, but just a drop? New på Disney Plus. This machine is going to change the world. The Dropout. En helt ny original serie. Anybody who doubts my company doubts me. Inspireret af en sand historie. We have to stop her. You don't understand the business. You don't understand the science. The Dropout. Stream alle episoder nu. Eksklusivt på Disney Plus. 79 kroner om måneden. Abonnement kræves. Vilkår gælder. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most. Because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part 13 of the case of serial killer Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Let's pick up right where we left off last week. It was fall of 2001. The disappearances of the women were ramping up again. Serena Abbott's way had vanished. Project Even Handed was coming together, and the Vancouver Sun ran 11 stories about the missing women and the police response. The pressure on the police to act was at an all-time high, and everyone was talking about the stories in the paper. Don Adams was leading Project Even Handed, and he began adding more resources to the team. He met with the families of the missing women and assured them that this time, the disappearances were going to be thoroughly investigated. A public announcement was finally made by RCMP and the Vancouver police. They were treating the disappearances of 46 women as murders. Just a month after that announcement was made, officials would have another name to add to the list. According to the Canadian press, Diane Brock was born on September 2, 1967. Her mother, just a teen herself, brought Diane to one of her friends to babysit when Diane was four weeks old. It was just supposed to be for the night, but the Marin family noticed the baby had a cold, so they kept her for a few days, eventually inviting Diane's teenage mother to stay with them. And so she did. It was then that the Marins realized that Diane's mother was unable to properly care for her alone, so they helped to care for both mother and baby, and eventually legally adopted Diane. The Marin children were already in their early teens, and they adored having this beautiful, bright-eyed, giggly baby in their home, and they all doted on little Diane. As she became a teenager, life got complicated. Diane became a mother at 15, got married at 17, and by the age of 19, had three children and was divorced from her husband and a single mom of three. She soon met her second husband and had two more children. It was a struggle being a mom of five at such a young age, but Diane loved it. She worked as a healthcare aide at a nursing home, but struggled to be able to provide for her children financially. She turned to exotic dancing as a quick way to make money. She could care for her five children during the day and make more in a quick night shift dancing 
than she'd make all week as an aide, and she still got to be there for her kids. This is the point in which her family believes Diane turned to drugs in order to give her the courage to dance up on stage. After a near-fatal overdose on cocaine in 1992, Diane, her husband, and children moved to Abbotsford, about an hour away from Vancouver, to start over again. Diane got a new job working with intellectually disabled adults, and she thrived. Her boss would recall to the outlet that she was a wonderful support worker, gentle and kind and very empowering to people. In 2000, her second marriage failed. Diane began taking classes at a private college in Surrey to better her life and the life of her children. But it was all too much for her, and in the spring of 2001, she relapsed. She lost custody of her children, and everything went to hell. According to On the Farm, a close friend, Janice, got a desperate call from Diane around the same time, begging her to come and pick her up in Port Coquitlam. Janice hauled ass and made it to Diane to find her covered with bruises. She didn't want to talk about what had happened and only told her she was at a party on a farm and she just needed to get back home. This wouldn't be the only time Janice would rescue Diane from Port Coquitlam, and the next time, she'd tell her what had happened. It was August of 2001 when Janice's phone rang again, another desperate call from Diane. She told her she was at the gas station across from the mall and she needed her to come and get her. Janice raced over again and found Diane had been beaten. Her lip was swollen, her arms and legs covered in bruises, hair matted, and her dress filthy and ripped. According to Janice, as documented and on the farm, she had marks around her wrist which appeared as if she had been restrained. Diane was sobbing and incoherent at first. But after a few moments, she began to tell her friend what had happened. I made a mistake, she said. I went to a party out at this farm where the girls got free drugs. And I ended up in a room and was raped by these guys. It was a lot of different guys. I was pretty high myself. I got locked in this room somewhere for two or three days. The windows in the room were blacked out. It was in a basement a room with blacked-out windows, and I was raped by all these guys. Janice begged her to go to the hospital and report what had just happened to the police, but Diane was terrified and refused to do either. Two months later, Diane Rock vanished. She called her son to wish him a happy birthday on October 17, 2001, and that was the last time anyone in her family heard from her. Project Even Handed was well underway by this point, and resources were pouring in to Don Adams' team. But before Willie Picton would end up in cuffs, one more woman would go missing. According to Cameron's book, Mona Lee Wilson's life had been marked by trauma and severe abuse from the time she was a young child. When she was just six years old, she was found beaten in the hallway of the apartment building she lived in by social workers. She was removed from her parents' custody and placed in a treatment center for youth. Mona had not only been abused physically, but suffered sexual abuse as well. She spent two years in the center and was placed with a foster family, the Garleys, at age eight. 
According to the Garleys, Mona had never attended school, only knew profanity, and the abuse she suffered at the hands of her own biological mother was unimaginable. At some point, Mona's own mother had tried to hang her. The Garleys became her new family, and life with this new family was a world away from the severe abuse and neglect Mona had known up until this point. They ran a hobby farm in Surrey, were kind, loving, took vacations, and also opened their home and hearts to some of the most traumatized foster children. They were a special kind of foster parents, the kind this world needs so many more of. Mona was finally given the childhood she always deserved. Her foster brother Greg spoke to the National Post and recalled that Mona loved being a farm girl. She hated all things girly and preferred to be outside in jeans and boots, hanging out with the animals, especially the baby chicks, going on to say, she'd lay right down in the mud with them and play with them and have them in her pockets. You had to check her when she came in the house because in her coat pockets, there would be a couple of chicks and in her boot, you'd have another. Mona loved the Garleys and they loved her. Though they cared for so many foster children as an emergency placement home, Mona was special to them. Challenges began, however, when she was a teen. She had suffered more abuse and trauma in her early years than most people experience in a lifetime, and she began to act out. Against the wishes of the Garleys, Mona was removed from their home and sent to a new foster family, where her behavior only got worse. At 16, she was placed in independent living, which meant she was provided housing by the government in East Vancouver and given money for food and necessities. And that's when things really unraveled. Mona began working in the sex trade and was quickly addicted to heroin. The years ticked on and Mona sunk deeper into her addiction. She began stopping by the Wish Drop-In Center like many of the women of the downtown east side. Director of Wish, Elaine Allen, recalled in On the Farm that Mona had a boyfriend named Steve Ricks, who was extremely abusive. Elaine had helped Mona get into a safe house on multiple occasions, but she always returned to Ricks. Just prior to her disappearance, Mona had decided she was done with it all. She was tired of living on the downtown east side, tired of the drugs, tired of the abuse. She wanted to enter detox, go to rehab, and kick the drugs for good. Elaine Allen of Wish was desperately looking for a detox for Mona, but there just wasn't a bed available for her anywhere. You see, it's not always easy for those seeking help from substance abuse issues. Even after they decide they're ready to kick the habit and get help, sometimes help just isn't available for them. They can spend days, weeks, months, or sometimes years waiting on a space for them to open up at a rehab center. And even if they are lucky enough to find a place with an opening, sometimes it ends up being a sham, and government-ran centers aren't immune. Mona wanted to get her life back on track. She wanted to do better. But she would never get that chance, because before a bed opened up, she vanished. It turned out the last person to see her alive was that asshole Steve Ricks, as he sent her out to work. 
It was November the 23rd, and he watched her get into a car with two men. According to Ricks, the men said they didn't want to have sex with her, but they would pay her for her time. Also, according to Ricks, he didn't want Mona doing sex work, but agreed to look out for her because he's such a protective guy, telling a reporter from The Sun, quote, I looked every bastard in the eye when she got into a car, and I made sure they knew I knew who they were. I told her, the reason you're alive is because I'm here. If I wasn't here, you'd be dead. Ironically, he couldn't identify the two bastards in the car that picked Mona up the night she vanished. He claimed it's because they chased him off with a piece of wood. I mean, it's his lie. We'll let him tell it. Regardless, Mona Wilson was reported missing on November 30th, 2001. And this time, the police paid attention. An investigator was immediately assigned to her case by Don Adam, and the leads were being tracked down. The case of the missing women was about to be blown wide open. In a little less than three months, Robert Willie Picton would be behind bars. But it wouldn't be for murder, at least not yet. And the rookie officer who tipped the whole thing off would be someone nobody expected. RCMP Constable Nathan Wells had been on the force for just under a year when he responded to the home of Scott Chubb in reference to a domestic disturbance. Chubb was a longtime Picton employee and friend. Way back in the beginning of this series, I told you to tuck that name in your hat because it'd be important later. Now's the time to go on ahead and pull it out, because it's about to get wild. Constable Wells arrived at the home. Chubb and his girlfriend had been arguing over child support. He had recently kicked his cocaine habit and got a new job with a new company. But he was thousands of dollars behind in child support, and his on-again, off-again girlfriend and mother of his children had lost her shit on him yelling and screaming about the money. It was Chubb who had called the police. He began to talk to Constable Wells, but instead of a discussion on cooling things down or the missed child support, Chubb complained that the mother of his children was back on drugs, and he was sick of it. And it wasn't just about her drug use. He was sick of the drug problem in all of Port Coquitlam, and he wanted the police to do something about it. And it wasn't just the drugs. Chubb was looking for a little payback. As it turned out, he had been jumped in a parking lot behind the Golden Ears Hotel, he claimed by members and associates of the Hells Angels. And we all remember Dave Picton's little obsession with the Hells Angels, right? Anyhow, the beating had been pretty brutal. Again, according to Chubb, as documented in On the Farm, he ended up with 160 stitches. He talked at length with Constable Wells, and the things he told him led Wells to believe that this guy might have some useful information. Wells gave him his contact number, and the pair made plans to speak later. Chubb ended the conversation by saying, You get back in touch with me. I'll make you famous. Nathan Wells had no idea at the time just how true those words would become. On January 25, 2002, Chubb called Wells and a meeting was arranged. 
Constable Wells knew he didn't have the experience under his belt to go it alone, so he brought along a partner. Chubb told the pair of officers that he was broke, needed money to pay his rent, and if they were interested, he could give them the names of three cocaine traffickers as well as a marijuana grow operation. But the officers weren't interested. The RCMP already knew the three traffickers and were already investigating. And as far as the weed, there were plenty of small grow operations and it wasn't something they wanted to go after. He'd have to give them more than that. They warned him that it needed to be legit because if he was making shit up just to get a payout, they'd find out and he'd get nothing. The initial meeting was over and everyone went their separate ways. Scott Chubb called again on February 1st, 2002. And this time, he believed he had something. They met up again, and Chubb informed them that Willie Pickton had three illegal guns in his trailer at 963 Dominion Avenue, a Smith & Wesson Mac 10, a 38, and a 44. Now this? This was information that Wells could work with. And with that, Scott Chubb officially became a paid informant. The two RCMP officers discussed Willie Pickton on the way back to the station. Wells knew of him, but the more experienced officer, Petrovich, he brought with him, knew about the incident with Sandra Ringwald and that he was a high priority on the list of suspects in the missing women's case. When they got back to the office, Wells reviewed Pickton's file. It was there that he found a notation to forward any information obtained on Willie to two detectives with the Vancouver police. The note was entered all the way back in 1998. So Wells took it up his chain of command and eventually all the way to Don Adams of Project Even Handed. Don Adams would later recall that this got his spidey senses tingling. This could be it, he thought. Constable Wells began drafting the search warrant and Adams requested two officers from the Missing Women's Task Force come along. On Tuesday, February 5th, 2002, the search warrant was signed. Investigators were about to step foot on the Picton farm with the authority to take a look around. The search warrant had to be served by 9 p.m. Investigators had worked frantically to get the teams together, briefed, and staged at a nearby parking lot. It was just after 8.30 as they finally headed over to the farm. Five officers silently made their way to Willie Picton's porch. The go-ahead was given from the team leader, and with a loud bam, the door was slammed open. The officers identified themselves with a yell. Police! Police! Search warrant! Willie Picton poked his head out of a second door that led out to the porch. Hey, what's happening, he said and slammed the door shut. But by now, officers already had access to the house. They slammed Willie on the ground face down and immediately cuffed him. Nathan Wells declared, I am arresting you for possession of prohibited and restricted firearms. Do you understand? Willie indicated that he did. His rights were read and he was hauled off to a waiting police car. What if you could test your blood in your own home, but just a drop? New Pod Disney Plus. This machine is going to change the world. The Dropout. In Hate New Originals. Anybody who doubts my company doubts me. 
Inspireret af en sand historie. We have to stop her. You don't understand the business. You don't understand the science. The Dropout. Stream alle episoder nu. Eksklusivt på Disney+. Plus. 79 kroner om måneden. Abonnement kræves. Vilkår gælder. As Wells drove Picton to RCMP headquarters, the search team got to work. They quickly located one of the guns Scott Chubb had told them about in the laundry room. After the illegal gun had been found, the team breathed a sigh of relief. The search warrant was good. Willie's bedroom was up first, and it didn't take long for officers to make several very disturbing discoveries. In the shelves of the headboard of Willie Picton's bed, they discovered a pair of handcuffs covered with fake tiger fur, which would later test positive for blood. Several pieces of women's jewelry, pieces of paper with Willie's friend Dinah Taylor's name, and a woman's purse. In the nightstands next to the bed, officers found a blue box with a flare gun inside. But this flare gun had been illegally modified to take 12-gauge shotgun shells. They also found a second pair of cuffs, these covered with red fur, and several cable ties. There was a box next to the nightstand on the floor, and when police opened it, it was slap full of kitchen knives of all different sizes. In the TV stand, Officer Petrovich would find something that would finally link Picton to one of the missing women. Among the various papers and books, there was a birth certificate and ID belonging to Heather Bottomley. Heather had disappeared in 1998 at just 25 years old. After Willie's room had been cleared, officers returned to the laundry room to get a closer look at the gun. They opened the gun case and inside was a 22 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver wrapped in plastic but there was something attached to it. I'm going to pause right here for just a moment because things are about to get weird. I tried every way but Sunday to think of a nicer, less awkward way to put into words exactly what was attached to the revolver, but there's really no other way to put it, except exactly the way it's documented. So here goes. Attached to the 22 revolver, was what has been described as a curved plastic dildo. It was pulled over the barrel and the revolver was fully loaded with a round in the chamber. DNA from both Willie Picton and one of the missing women would later be found on the sex toy. And Willie would claim that he was using the dildo as a silencer. A silencer? Okay, Willie. How the DNA got there? He'd claim he didn't know. In Willie's office, a gray ski bag with a pair of women's running shoes and an asthma inhaler were found. The inhaler was prescribed to Serena Abbotsway on July 19, 2001, just weeks before she had gone missing. The search team radioed in to Don Adams and informed him about the items of the missing women's being found, and he instructed them to immediately stop the search and seize the entire property. He was going to need a second search warrant to legally obtain evidence relating to the missing women. Adam began making arrangements for the second warrant. He also got authorization to wiretap Willie's phone. He began bringing in more and more officers and top crime scene investigators to assist because he knew the search alone was going to be a huge undertaking. 
The families were notified about Picton's arrest, and word travels fast. Press from not only Canada, but all over the world swarmed the farm. Finally, there was a glimpse of hope that the women may receive the justice their families had fought for for so long. Willie was officially charged with storing a firearm contrary to regulations, possession of a firearm while not being a holder of a license, and possession of a loaded restricted firearm. Those charges would only keep Picton in jail for less than 24 hours before he was able to bond out. He then showed up back at the farm to feed his pigs. He and his brother Dave were escorted by police to feed the animals. That's when officers informed him that he would be barred from coming back, and they would make arrangements for the care of the animals. Willie went to stay with his brother Dave in a home off the farm. The second search warrant was approved and investigators poured in to search every inch of the Picton farm. The Picton farm became the largest crime scene in Canadian history. Forensic teams, anthropologists, and heavy machinery would be required to sift through mounds of dirt, multiple buildings, old cars, and a camper. The search would take 18 months and a whole lot of headaches. No time was wasted, and as soon as the search warrant was signed, crime scene investigators got to work, uncovering more and more evidence as the days, weeks, and eventual months ticked on. In Willie's bedroom, more of Heather Bottomley's possessions were found a notebook, a red plastic wallet, as well as even more official documents that clearly belonged to her. There were also multiple sex toys, lubricants, a box labeled G-spots filled with all kinds of vibrators, and three belts, a man's black belt along with two women's belts, a hairbrush, and syringes. The mattress and wall was stained with what investigators suspected to be blood. In the pockets of Serena Abbotsway's gray ski bag that had previously been found, investigators found two syringes filled with a blue liquid which appeared to them to be antifreeze. Round number two in Willie's office uncovered a woman's leather jacket with apparent bloodstains on the collar and sleeves. In the loft above the mechanical shop, multiple women's purses were found. A motorhome on the property was stained with blood. On the wall just above a bed, on molding, on socks and shoes, on a plywood kitchen counter, an orange cushion, and a foam mattress. A long white metal mesh hose with a shower head attached was also found with apparent blood stains. They found a crack pipe and syringes in the pockets of multiple women's jackets in the camper and a box full of more handcuffs. In a trash can, Serena Abbotsway's receipt from Garland Pharmacy, along with two more inhalers prescribed to her. In the slaughterhouse, a woman's watch. Everywhere they turned, another horror. In that slaughterhouse, an entire pig's head was just lying there on a butcher's table, a hole between the eyes that looked like it was made by a nail gun. If you remember, way on back in the beginning of the series, we talked all about how Willie Picton often used basic-ass hardware store nail guns to execute pigs on the farm. It appeared that was the fate of this pig. Another pig hung from hooks, hoisted up from the ceiling, decomposing there along with other carcasses 
just strewn all about. There were live pigs in a livestock trailer near the slaughterhouse with no food or water. The conditions were deplorable, with many of the pigs sick, overcrowded, and literally stacked on one another. Several were so ill they had to be humanely euthanized by a veterinarian. As the search continued at the farm, Constable Nathan Wells got ready for another conversation with his informant, Scott Chubb. And this time, the conversation wouldn't be about illegal weapons. Wells wanted to know exactly what Chubb knew about Willie Pickton and the missing women. Again, he brought along a more senior officer to assist him in the questioning. Chubb confirmed the story that the previous informant had told about Lynn Ellingson and how she was blackmailing Willie. He didn't tell the full story about the woman Lynn claimed to have seen hanging in the slaughterhouse, but he did know that whatever Lynn had on Willie, it had something to do with the missing women, and Willie wanted so badly to keep it a secret, he had tried to get Scott Chubb to help him find someone to kill Lynn. Chubb said he recognized a couple of the missing women and thought they had been out at the farm. As the conversation went on, it took a turn I don't think anyone was expecting. Chubb described how Willie would kill the pigs by slitting their throats or shooting them in the head with a nail gun or some twisted combination of both. He'd then hoist them up with the chains in the slaughterhouse. And then Scott Chubb went on to say, and I quote, And then he'd hold them up, and then, you know, I always thought this was kind of weird. He'd grab them by the crotch and kind of stroke their pecker for some reason. I don't know why the hell he'd do that. Nobody knows, Scott. Absolutely no one. But that wasn't the only claim of some weird bestiality-type shit going on at that farm. Employees of Dave Picton had told Chubb about a woman named Shelly who Willie bought sex toys from, most notably a life-size blow-up doll Willie had purchased for his brother Dave on his 50th birthday, and an inflatable pig. An inflatable pig that Willie Picton kept on his desk and referred to as the fuckable pig. I've got nothing, y'all. On February 15th, RCMP Corporal Dana Lilly served Willie with a summons for a court date on the firearms charges. Picton and Lilly's would have contact several other times throughout the investigation. But what Willie Picton didn't know is that Corporal Lilly's was actually a skilled interrogator. According to testimony later revealed at the trial and reported by CBC.ca, Dana Lilly's posed as a sympathetic and rogue officer, who wasn't even supposed to be conversing with him. Oh, but that's exactly why she was there. Willie was none the wiser and talked pretty openly with Lily's. He told her all about his childhood, that black and white calf his parents had slaughtered, his female pen pals, especially Connie, the one he had fallen in love with and almost married, the death of both of his parents, the clause in the will that forced him to remain on the farm, his bully of a brother Dave, and even his disdain for the American love of all things George Washington and Cherry Pie. He recounted how Sandra Gale Ringwald had stabbed and nearly killed him. And it was all poor, poor Willie, 
his life hadn't been easy. He cried like the little bitch he is, and I shit you not, he told Lilies he felt like Princess Diana because the media was hounding them just as they had her. The beautiful and gracious Princess Diana. I have no idea how we ended up here, but nonetheless, we're here. He droned on and on about how he was a good guy who helped people. Like Gina Houston, he had given her a truck and wanted nothing in return. If he was a killer, why hadn't he killed her? He asked Lilies. Willie claimed he only had the guns because he had inherited them, and the farm could be a dangerous place. They were for his protection, of course. He sobbed as he said, It doesn't matter what happens now. My life is over. I'm screwed and tattooed. Dana Lilies had remained pretty quiet and just let Willie talk. This initial conversation had gone on for over an hour. But at this point, she had a few questions for Willie Picton. She asked about the inhaler police had found. How the hell had it ended up on the farm? And Willie, well, he had an excuse for everything. It must have came from one of the cars he had bought at a police auction. And the finger? Lilies informed Willie that a woman's finger had been found in the barn. Now, this was complete bullshit and totally made up. No fingers had been found in the barn or anywhere else just yet. However, this little white lie had been orchestrated to see what Willie's response would be. And Willie? He repeatedly asked exactly where it had been found and wrote it off as some kind of industrial accident. He didn't have a name of who the finger could have belonged to, but he assured Lilies that no woman had ever cut her finger off on the farm. But a man? It could have happened. One would assume someone losing a digit on your farm would be a pretty vivid memory, but a Willie couldn't recall who the missing finger could have belonged to. Lilies wrapped things up and informed Willie that he needed to show up and be fingerprinted, and she left. Four days later, she returned to tell Willie that he actually didn't need to come in and get fingerprinted because they were just going to use the prints and photographs from his arrest on the weapons charge. This time, the conversation was brief, but at some point Willie picked and blurted out that he wanted to die. She returned again the next day to inform Willie that the finger was tested and it turned out it was male DNA. Or at least that's why she told Picton she was there. After telling Willie about the male DNA, Lilies pulled out a poster of the missing women and asked Willie to tell her which of the women on the poster would have been at the farm. Willie fumbled through his words as he responded. Well, they're sure ugly, aren't they? See, them, none of them. This one here looks like somebody. Not sure. Not at my place. I might have seen her downtown. I know a lot of women. Number 14. Seen her around someplace. Not at my place. She looks awful pretty. There are some that are pretty. Are they all missing? Lilies told him that they were, and he went on to say he didn't know any of them but maybe he had seen one or two of them downtown and given them 20 bucks or so. He then began to ramble about Dinah Taylor. 
Dana Lillies informed him of just how thoroughly they intended to search the farm and that the search was already underway. Willie was adamant that they wouldn't find anything there besides animal bones and drew a map for where chickens, a llama, and piles of pig bones were. As he drew out the map, he said, The doorway is here. The bones are three feet long. You'd be interested in looking at them. Bones of what? she asked. Willie answered, If you were to see them, you'd think they were human. He then went on a tangent about that Christmas Eve night when he released the pigs in the downtown east side in 1997 and eventually circled back around to the bones, stating, These ones here, these leg bones, they would be, Only thing I ever kept were leg bones. They're two-legged. I'm gonna be nailed to the cross, I tell you. He gestured back to the map. There's one doorway there, one doorway there, one doorway there. If they wish me to, I'd go in and show them. Possibly one bone is right there. These are two-legged. If they are human, I'm nailed to the cross. Lily's completely confused as to where this conversation was headed, asked, Are they going to come back as human, Robert? Willie drifted off into another side conversation. Lily's brought him back and he kept insisting if the bones came back as human, he was screwed. It seemed Willie was toying with her. He finally said, The bones are not human. And further, I should probably tell you what they are. The bones are ostrich. I had three of them. That would be the last conversation Lily's would have with Picton, and it wasn't long before he was back behind bars. As the search continued, items seized were sent off to the lab for testing to be performed. And on February 21st, 2002, just weeks after Willie Picton's initial arrest for the firearms charge, the lab informed investigators that the first batch of results were in. DNA tests on the bloodstains found on various items in the motorhome matched the last woman to disappear, Mona Wilson. The following day, Picton was arrested again and charged with the first-degree murder of Mona Wilson and Serena Abbotsway. He was told as his charges were read that he was also under investigation for the murders of another 48 women. Willie remained quiet for a few moments and then said, You mean I murdered every one of them? The officer responded, I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, no kidding, I'm shocked myself, Willie replied. Are you? the officer asked. You kind of knew it was coming, though, didn't you, Willie? No, fuck, I can't believe this. And with that, Robert Willie Picton was transported to the Surrey Municipal Center and booked on first-degree murder charges at 1.33 p.m., February 22, 2002. And while he had acted completely shocked at being arrested for murder and said very little on the trip to the jail, he'd soon be running his mouth again, this time to his cellmate. But what Willie Picton didn't know was that his cellmate wasn't exactly who he appeared to be. But that's another story for another day, because unfortunately, we're out of time. 
Join me next week for the conclusion of the Pig Farmer series. Stevie Cameron's book On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women can be purchased on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. It is wonderfully written and details absolutely every aspect of this case. I'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.